Welcome back, Action Alerts Plus subscribers and AAP podcast listeners. Chris Versace here. And as you know, we like to share the conversations that we're having with various management teams. We find that they take us kind of behind the scenes and in the know. And we simply love sharing them so you, the listener, can understand not only what we're hearing, but also use it to filter into your own investment mosaic. And with that said, today, boy, we've got another great conversation coming with you. We've got Bob Wright, president and CEO of Potbelly, ticker symbol PBPB. And Bob has been the CEO since 2020, uh, around July. And I think, as you'll hear in our conversation, very instrumental in the turnaround that is unfolding at Potbelly. But as way of background, Bob also spent some time at Wendy's, Domino's, Checkers, and a number of others clearly signaling that the man understands the restaurant industry. So with that, let's welcome Bob right on. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. That's great to be with you, Chris. Thank you. Now, Bob, uh, Wendy's, Domino's, Checkers, did I did I miss anybody? Uh, Charlie's is another one that's in there, Charlie's Philly Steaks. Uh, I was with him for about three years, uh, but most of my tenure was with Domino's Pizza and then two different stints with Wendy's, a total of about 16 years with Wendy's. Oh, wow. And that was the last role I had uh, before coming on board with Pop Millie. Right. And you came on in around July 2020. And let me just set the stage for folks because, you know, Pop Millie went public back in 2014. And, you know, from what I remember, the stock kind of popped on its debut. Uh, company was growing revenue from about 2013 to 2016. Revenue growth started to slow in 2017. Then all of a sudden, you know, it started to contract, margins were under pressure, and then in 2020, it reported some losses. So I, I'm just kind of curious, Bob, you know, with that as a backdrop, given your experience in the restaurant industry, your time at Wendy's, what, what was the light bulb that went off in your head that said, oh, I know what's going on. I can fix this. Well, I... Uh... I would have never thought that I could fix it. Uh, you know, anything like this takes a team, but at the core of, of any opportunity that would have attracted me, um, it it really needed to be a strong brand with with the kind of latent brand equities that Potbelly has. I've been a fan of the Potbelly brand for over 20 years. Um, I've followed it, been interested in it. I think that uh, I think it's a very strong, distinct, and differentiated brand, especially in the fast casual space. And frankly, I watched that trajectory that you just described from when it went public, and um, and felt like it had really been kind of undermanaged its uh, to its potential, especially during those last five years before the pandemic. I mean, no disrespect whatsoever to previous management. It's just that the the things that seemed to be the most valuable were the things that were being under leveraged a little bit. So, hmm. um, yeah, is it, I mean, middle of the pandemic. Bob, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but is, is it possible that, I mean, you know, companies, they have founders and they have certain management teams. And is, is it just perhaps that the management team that was in place that took them public really wasn't the management to do that? I think it'd be unfair for me to to say that. Okay. Um, I I would say that uh, some of the decisions that they made would certainly not be aligned with the decisions I would have made or am making today. And I think, um, you know, I think a lot of that uh, goes to the growth strategy that came out of the going public. Uh, the brand was continuing to grow with a company operated footprint, um, and candidly was 
really spreading the brand across the U.S. with, um, you know, with a, a bit of a flag planning strategy. So today we enjoy the remnants of that strategy because we have potbelly shops in 33 states from coast to coast and from the northern boundary of, of the U.S. to the southern. But when you're growing from a regional brand or a super regional like Potbelly was when it went public, um, you know, it would have made uh, probably made more sense to me to focus on market penetration in concentric growth circles um, and and really growing that way. We have we have markets that uh, we have a large number of markets, in fact, that are less than 25 percent penetrated against what we believe the potential is. And then I think that the uh, that that stage of growth was made a little bit worse because real estate selection is so critical in the restaurant development space that a number of those of those units are open in the 16, 17 class, even the 18 class of shops just weren't performing uh, to the brand expectations and and really weren't the kind of uh, financial model that that made continued growth attractive. And so things stalled and it became uh, a lot more difficult to find that momentum again. Right, right. But now when you come in, you know, and we flash forward to today where, you know, you're just coming off delivering nine consecutive quarters, you know, of same store positive sales, most recent quarter 12.9%. You know, clearly you guys have uh, reinvigorated the brand, you're attracting people. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, a couple things at the top. But what 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 were some of the steps that you outlined and you've really, in your opinion, started to really execute against? Yeah, thanks. I think uh, the the five pillar strategy that we've been operating under since the end of 2020 uh, continues to serve us well. And if you love the restaurant space, you'll look at that strategy and think it's um, it, it may be even a little bit too simple to to deliver the kind of great results that we have, but it's it's very straightforward and it leans on and leverages the best parts of Potbelly. Number one is great food at a great value. That's the first pillar. The second pillar is all about our people. Uh, we have some of the most uh, special people in our shops and above our shops delivering outstanding kind of good vibe service, which is the phrase that's been around the brand for a long time. The middle pillar, which needed a lot of work, uh, in fact, in fact, all the five did. But the middle pillar was uh, uh, is about operations execution and delivering a customer experience that has them wanting to come back. From that first step in the shop to the last bite before they leave, we had a lot of work to do. Um, the fourth pillar is all about digital, digital advertising as well as digital engagement, and the fifth one is the franchising focus for growth. What we did in those early days is we established a unifying, very focused, unifying objective for the entire company. We were losing money, we we're bleeding cash, and we had been on a multi-year traffic decline, driven primarily by, um, I think, some undisciplined menu management and undisciplined pricing. So um, the, the effort to return traffic growth to the brand and to find profitability was there were no more important things for us to do. Um, so what you saw underneath those five pillars and continue to see, and we talk about these things publicly, are the strategic initiatives initially that had the very lowest investment with the highest potential return that could get us closer to that traffic and, and profitability we were looking for. 
So the menu, take the first one, for example, we rebuilt the menu starting at the end of 2020, rolled it out in 2021, um, because all the better, all the research I could find, we didn't, we didn't uh, uh, commence any additional research, but the research we had was fairly fresh. And it said we had a very large value problem with the customer. That pricing that I mentioned had mm -hmm. turned into an issue. People were not happy with what they were getting for what they were paying. People were not happy with what they were paying for what they were getting. So we were losing uh, really value re re uh, relevance with all of our customers. So we rolled out the new menu, put a new size in. We actually made our originals and our bigs bigger because people were saying I wasn't getting enough in return for that. Yes, we raised the price, but not as much as we added in food value. Then the same year we rolled out our new app and our new web uh, interface for our customers. Uh, we started doing some digital advertising in social space. And uh, I hired a tremendous COO, Adam Noyes, uh, who, who's still my COO today with even more expanded responsibility and just turned him loose to really really just kind of re revamp the operations, the labor guides, the systems, the tools, the training materials, the the uh, alignment of our shop level and field level incentive programs to reward people for performance. All of that Adam has revamped and you know I'm really proud of the customer satisfaction scores that we have today. And then, you know, we every year we reevaluate those strategic initiatives. There's usually less than 10 of them. Seven is the sweet spot for serving all five of those pillars. And that's where the, the rubber really meets the road. Um, and I think, honestly, Chris, the, the quality of my management team is reflected in that work. These are restaurant people that have a tremendous amount of experience that are really hardworking, but but solid in their experience and what works, what needs to be done, and this deep respect for what you have to work with, with a brand like Potbelly. Now, it's interesting to me because, you know, there, everybody talks about turnaround times and, you know, the, the adage is, oh, turnarounds are like tankers, right? You know, it takes yeah. a long time to turn and then all of a sudden they whip and momentum picks up. So mm -hmm. kind, kind of with that, um, you know, how far along in the in the turnaround are you? And, and I'm curious on this because you're already starting to see some margin benefits, right? You know, if, if we look at the most, uh, the last quarter or two, if memory serves, I, I think your uh, margins are better than they've ever been. Yeah, we're, we're enjoying success on a number of fronts. I mean, this, and this is, um, you know, the, the, the great thing about the restaurant space is it's not terribly complex to understand. It's really difficult to execute. Um, it's incredibly difficult to execute, but the understanding of what you need to accomplish, traffic growth, margin expansion at the unit level, that drives interest with franchisees. It makes the investment model work harder for you and it allows you to, to fund the growth that you want to continue to, to develop with. Um, and we have enjoyed uh, on the top line first, that's what we got moving first. Uh, we've enjoyed those consecutive quarters of growth that you talked about. I'm, I'm particularly proud of my team the last two quarters uh, more than half of our top line growth has come from traffic. And um, for for a, a segment in fast casual that's running around flat in traffic, um, QSR is down a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. Casual dining is struggling with traffic as we've exited the pandemic. And, you know, we've kind of found our our way back to a healthier economy. 
we're actually driving significant traffic. So, you know, 12.9, it was over 22% growth the previous quarter, and more than half of that is coming from traffic. So we're not just growing the business organically, but in our segment, we're stealing share from our fast casual competitors. And so, that's so what you, creates that ongoing health. So when you say that, you know, I, I think a lot of people tend to think of fast casual as um, sliding counter service, if you will, a Subway, a Chipotle. Are, are those the type of folks that you view as your competitors? Yeah, Subway, I think depending on the uh, the industry data uh, aggregators is probably put into a, um, a sandwich category that may or may not be included in fast casual. But yes, Chipotle's fast casual, Panera's fast casual, McAllister's, Portillo's, those brands are you know, those are the 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 names that people would recognize. It's not always slide down the counter, but that's an element of it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But it's it's also reflected in the experience and the consumer. Uh, fast casual consumers tend to be higher income than QSR. Um, they're going to be seventy five and one hundred thousand and up. Um, they skew younger um, and they have a more active and varied lifestyle, but they're drawn to the things that they would describe fast casual with, which is higher quality, better value, maybe a little bit more average check uh, and an overall better experience. And I think that's, you know, that's where I have always seen in our brand the kind of potential that was really not being taken advantage of. We have this you know, we have this kind of quirky environment at Potbelly that's rooted in our antique shop heritage up in Chicago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And people, they don't talk so much about antiques because not everybody knows that history. But when they do describe Potbelly, they use words like warm, authentic, genuine, high quality. They talk about the wood surfaces. They talk about the engagement with the, the employees. This is a place people, yeah, we do 38% of our business digitally. But there's still a place where people want to cross the threshold, come in and have a meal. Customer who orders a, you know, a digital pickup order on Tuesday may be back on Friday with friends to enjoy lunch together. Um, and and that that overall experience is really what uh, continues to pull the kind of customer base towards fast casual from really from below us and above us. So, so Bob, just getting back to the margin um, and the turnaround, have mm-hmm. you guys um, shared publicly any margin targets at all? Yeah, we have. We uh, we outlined uh, last year our what we considered then our long range goals for 2024. We set a target of of 1.3 million dollars AUVs. The brand prior to 2019 had never averaged a million dollars. So we put a 1.3 million dollar target out there. We said we wanted to get our our shop level margins, which is the engine for all that growth uh, to 16%. Um, And uh, that's a slightly different margin than it was in the past. There are a number of things the company used to carry costs on. We, We do share those costs with the shops as we should things like marketing expenses and mm-hmm, so on. Mm-hmm. So that 16% would be uh, the healthiest in history. Um, and then the third thing we said was we would we would begin to achieve real momentum in unit growth with a 10% total unit growth uh, target in 2024. Um, and we, let me let me just ask, uh, is that is that store owned shops or including franchisees or just total unit growth? Yeah, most of our unit growth, we, we we have exclusively focused on franchise growth. And so that would be unit growth against the total base. Um, uh, north of 80% of our units are still owned by the company. 
but you know, 427 units, that's the that's what we want to grow 10% of, even though all of it will come through franchise growth. I like the franchise business model. It's it's um you know, it, it, there were a couple of things that I noticed when I was ticking through your latest uh, earnings report. Um, one was franchises, which I'll talk about now, but I'll tease the second one, which is in your cost section, you actually break out packaging costs, which I was surprised to see. Um, <laughs> but but j- just in terms of franchisees, to stick with that, I mean, that is a great, what I, what I term, asset light way to grow the business. And the margins there are, are very favorable. At least that's my understanding. Um, I, I liken it to um, Costco in the sense that when, when you really dig into Costco and you look at where they make 70, 60 to 80% of their um, operating income from, it's not from what they sell. It's from the membership fees business mm-hmm. that they have. It's extremely high margin. And I'm not going to say that that's the same for Potbelly, but I do like the growth prospects for that higher margin business as you go down this route. Yeah, look, I agree. I've been in the franchise restaurant business since I was 19 years old. Um, and uh, I I love the franchise space. And you're right, for the corporation, it can be a very healthy business. Um, it tends to only be healthy so long as you stay focused on the success of the franchisees themselves. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll be honest with you, that's one of the parts of the business I love the most. Uh, franchisees in the restaurant space are some of my favorite people. Um, they love taking care of the customer. They love taking care of their employees. They they enjoy building their business. They enjoy kind of the community-centric nature of being a franchisee. They tend to build their business in the place that they live and share with their community. So it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing on a number of fronts, uh, but absolutely correct uh, that for us as a company, it's the right thing to do. It's the right way to grow. And frankly, you know, when the company went public, like you asked about earlier, uh, it was flush with cash. All that fresh capital came in and it had the opportunity to, to prove that company owned growth model like other companies have done well. Chipotle mm-hmm, is a mm-hmm. great example of that. Um, but the the company was not successful um, to do that. So uh, this round of growth will need to be funded through uh, other people's capital and franchisees are going to be the source of that. The other thing I think is really important about this moment in time in franchising is depending on who you you read, the, the reduction in overall restaurants because of the pandemic is in the mid to high teens in terms of percentage of total restaurants in America. So there's a massive market share potential with restaurant growth because we simply have far fewer restaurants than we had in 2019, and yet we still have the same number of people. And the, the other interesting data point is, is American consumers tend to spend, and they have since about the 40s, about 5% of their disposable income on meals outside the home. So there's nothing about the, the American consumer that would tell you that that there's anything but a large market share to be grabbed uh, with unit growth. And the thing about franchising is you can go faster. And so we can grow more markets more rapidly and try to take advantage of that market share opportunity while it still exists. And you have, I believe, um, announced something like 106, 107 franchisees that'll be coming to market in the next year. Is that right? Our announcement this past quarter was we have a uh, when we when we kicked off the details of our franchising strategy we call it the 
franchise growth acceleration initiative because it included our approach to franchising and I'm delighted to share those details with you, but it also included our willingness to refranchise about 25% of our company owned units. At the time of that announcement, we have approximately 400 company units. So, you know, you, the math is easy. We're, we're willing to sell about 100 locations over a multi-year period of time, but we'd use those to seed that growth. So under that Franchise Growth Acceleration Initiative, we said we would we would franchise multi-unit deals that are geographic geographically concentric, um, anywhere from you know smaller deals in the single digits, and we'll do larger deals for the group that's capable of developing those. Um, and those are called SDAA Shop Development Area Agreements. Um, so we have 106 units since we started that just at the end of last year that are already committed to under those SDAAs. Um, and that was our that was our message to the street that, look, we, we aren't just talking about franchising. We've got deals signed up with bona fide franchisees that are working on their development and we're about halfway through the year for the types of pipeline that, that's gonna help us hit that 10% next year and accelerate beyond that in years after. And you also just added a, a new uh, member to the management team just focused on franchising. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Lynette McKee is our senior vice president of franchising. And um, uh, what I did is I uh, I continued as you grow, we, we have to continue to specialize the leadership uh, on the on the management team that's going to do that work. Adam Noyes is our chief operating officer, and I took real estate construction and engineering and moved it to his responsibility because those are truly execution type responsibilities for development and operators are great at execution. Franchising with uh, Lynette's, uh, Lynette's one of her, her towering strengths is recruiting um, and she understands market planning and she uh, she really understands the deal structure. She's also, she's also scaled franchising organizations before, which we're in the midst of doing. Uh, her last one of her last uh, employed jobs was with Dunkin Donuts, um, and uh, she was she had scaled that franchising organization to the point that they they sold twenty six hundred units in her last year with the company. Oh wow! They opened eight hundred, but they sold twenty six hundred. Um, our long range goal is to open two thousand. So um, this is this is feeling very manageable to her. Uh, but is it great so? So I'm I'm just you know curious um, about this one part because I, I was talking with some other companies the other day. This one uh, REIT in commercial real estate space, uh, they might even be a partner of yours, um, Whitestone REIT, um, and they were saying that right now their preference is to go out and buy existing um, open air mall uh, centers and rehab them because mm-hmm. you know one the um borrowing costs have escalated and you know there's that aspect to it there's also the issue of just you know the construction market non-residential construction shortage of uh construction workers and i was just Mm kind of curious do you you see that as a potential bump in the road for your franchise plan whereas you know these two potential headwinds i'm sure you can make some inroads to it but is it possible it might be a little slower going at least in the near term i guess 
Well, we have some advantages when it comes to development. Uh, we we typically go into lease spaces. Uh, we've been very successful as a brand in a number of different market types. So we have our central business districts, we call them CBDs for short, uh, our urban locations, which are near those city centers, still densely populated, but you never think of them as as outside the city or suburban. Most of our shops are in suburbs, um, and about 10% of our population has a drive-through. Most of those drive-throughs are in suburbs as well. University shops, airports, and some other uh, special site locations. So we've proven that we can go into a lot of environments and and do well. Um, So, you know, when most of that's in lease space, uh, we don't need a drive-through. We uh, we have very high volume locations that don't have a drive-through, so we're not we're not you know so focused on a particular type of space that we have to we have to fit in and we do a lot of work for our franchisees that many brands don't do to help them target their real estate efforts um, and what we're finding is that they're they're locating we call them second generation spots um, they may be closed restaurants or exiting restaurants or uh, locations that are really just right for a pot belly that are easy to convert um, and our capital costs are, are very low. In QSR, for example, you're going to find that the capital cost to build a location is approximately one to one from a sales to investment ratio. If the unit does $2 million in volume, it may cost about $2 million to build a freestanding drive through hamburger restaurant. We do, uh, I told you our goal next year is 1.3. Uh, if you annualize last quarter sales, we're already over that number. Um, and uh, so it takes about 600,000 to build a pot belly when you're doing over a million three in volume. Uh, that's more than two to one. So it's mm-hmm. a very attractive investment model. That 600,000 would be an empty clean box if you are going into a second generation location that maybe has the restrooms already installed or there's a hood in the right place, boy, the costs really come down. Um, And we provide quite a bit of our own decor because most of it is recycled materials and custom made pieces. We, uh, We actually make it for less than you might import similar types of decor items. We make all of that in Chicago. And so we can uh, we can help franchisees offset the risk that would go with any debt they may take on. And even if they do borrow a little bit of money, uh, we haven't found that to be a big barrier. Got it. Excellent. Excellent. Um, just just getting back to margins for a second. Um, mm-hmm. You know. The two big components, obviously, that you guys have to deal with or two of the major components. One is, of course, going to be input costs in terms of food and then labor. Mm-hmm. And e- even today, uh, the latest uh, NFIB small business survey still says that something along the lines of 90% of the small businesses that are looking to find people can't find people. Um, mm-hmm. le- leads me to think that we're going to continue to see some upward pressure on uh, wages just so people can attract the people that they want. Um, how, how are you seeing that, you know, in your stores? Are you guys able to attract the type of people that you want? And then, and then just on the food side of it, what, what are you seeing in terms of food inflation? Or are you starting to see food deflation? Yeah, we're certainly experiencing continued inflation. The rate of inflation is returning to something that's more normal. This year's labor inflation will be in the low to mid single digits for us. Um, 
which is uh, getting very close to historical trends. You know, historically for years, we would have labor inflation in the 3% range. It's still a little higher than that. Um, and then food inflation, uh, we, you know, we have such a varied market basket because we literally have every protein out there, poultry, pork, uh, we have beef, we have, um, we have uh, Italian meats, uh, you know, we have different types of cheeses and, and produce. So we've got quite a wide variety of, of inputs, which means that we have a fairly balanced level of, of uh, protection against any one single spike. Um, and, you know, sure, last year when the when the uh, bird flu hit the poultry market, obviously it really hurt turkey, but then chicken prices went up as well. And, you know, we, we certainly felt that. But we're not selling raw chicken wings coming off the spot market where we have to ride that 10-point in, increase in costs. Um, so there's some balance there. We are seeing food costs uh, really come into a not necessarily deflationary environment yet, but uh, very, very close to flat for us for the remainder of the year. And most of our market basket is locked in now for the rest of the year. And when would you look to lock in it for 2024? Well, we do it on a rolling basis uh, and do it by ingredient. So uh, things that we believe we can uh, we can find some long-term value in, especially if it's in partnership with our provider, then we'd be delighted to lock in for a longer period of time. You know, during that rapid inflation, no one wanted to lock in because no one wanted to get caught going up. Um, right. And right. now everybody's kind of minding the downward slope and they don't want to get it stuck, uh, you know, on too far down if that's the case. But on a rolling quarterly basis, at least a quarter out, closer to six months out, you're going to find that most everything we have is locked in, and a number of things are going to be locked in longer than that. So um, we we basically manage each of those ingredients as we can to give us the best advantage over time. So, Bob, not trying to put words in your mouth, but just checking the the thought process here. Mm -hmm. If we're if, given what you just said about that, and Tyson Foods, for example, is saying. Man, our pol our um, pork prices are down 16% year over year. Chicken slash poultry prices are down mid single digits, which is something they just said yesterday, mm -hmm. right? If that continues, that would be a positive for you in in one to two quarters, assuming it holds. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and sometimes you can pull just you know just speaking supply chain uh not to i wouldn't want to mislead you and say this is exactly how we're managing it but sometimes mm -hmm. when you see those things coming you can blend out a longer agreement pull some of that savings forward and smooth out the risk for the supplier so you don't always have to wait until the end of what your current locked period is a lot of that is just done in partnership with the supplier to help them too so the one big question I have for you as, as we get towards wrapping up our conversation is, you know, restaurants are always kind of a tricky business, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they they can have their moment in the sun, um, be very popular for, you know, either a particular menu item, particular promotion, what have you. Um, but, you know, the customer is a fickle beast, you know, by and large, right? So, you know, how do you keep your finger on the pulse of what the consumer wants, right? Keep them coming back to Potbelly um, so that the, the the brand continues to resonate, if you will, with consumers. 
It's such a great question because uh, everything we do, and I think most of uh, the success that we've enjoyed is rooted in a focus on what really the customer, what the customer is really telling you. Uh, I told you about where we started with the menu. Um, you know, one would think that was a very risky move to completely rebuild the menu in the middle of the pandemic when we were losing money. But the best thing to do is to turn to what the customer is telling you and react and respond to that in a way that rewards them for for taking the time to tell you. Um, and that's what we continue to do. Of course, we've got uh, the, the research and the consumer insights work that's done internally. Um, our chief marketing officer is uh, an outstanding leader in this space, not just from a digital perspective, because he's been critical in our success with our digital work, but um, he is a uh, he's a data informed leader. And I chose those words carefully because they're the same ones he uses. He reads the data, he understands the data, but he doesn't let the data make the decisions. Uh, we as business leaders make those decisions, but mm -hmm. we do use the information to to kind of do that. So we have that research. Um, but I tell you, uh, part of our biggest success with our digital program uh, is rooted in, at the core of what we're doing digitally is our perks program, our perks loyalty program with our uh, with our best customers. It has continued to be the number one driver of growth uh, for us in that digital engagement space with our customers. And those Perks loyalty users, uh, uh, every quarter, we don't publish the numbers, but we have shared that they continue to make up a larger and larger percentage of that total digital business. That's our penetration number, if you will, the, the mix of our sales that's coming through people that are ordering as a Perks member. And then the Perks member acquisition uh, uh, continues to find new highs every quarter, every month because of the promotional activity that we do. So we don't simply promote a price that tries to beat the price of somebody else's price. We're promoting the very best things about the brand and the best way to take advantage of those things like our cookies or our great sandwiches or the shakes. You know, the, the shakes shake, are amazing. Shakes, Bob, with, yes. the little, with the little cookie on top. Isn't that special? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Hand-dipped ice cream shakes that, you know, are made right before your eyes. Uh, all of that stuff uh, is is pushing people into perks. Well, that means we've got a mountain of data about not only consumer behavior, but our most important customer behavior. And, um, you know, they they definitely vote with their feet. So if you're doing things well and you're doing them right, then you're going to see that business continue to grow. And if not, then you're going to see it stall. So that's how we keep our finger on it. We we obviously study the space and the industry. Um, and then we do what other founders have taught me in my past. I was really blessed to be at Wendy's when Dave Thomas was still alive. And I got to know him a little bit when I worked there. And, um, you know, I loved I loved hearing from the founder what was so important to the brand and uh the same thing was here. One of the first phone calls I made before I even joined the company at Potbelly was to Bryant Kyle, our founder, who I think you may have seen in an announcement just became mm -hmm, one of our mm -hmm, franchisees. In Florida, and I think, right? He's in Maryland. Maryland. Um, okay, the sorry. Florida announcement was also made in the last few days with all the deals that we've done in Florida over the last few months. Um, but no, he's going... Brian spent half of his childhood in Chicago, the other half of it in Washington, D.C. Um, he bought the first Potbelly location and turned it into a 250-unit chain before it went public. 
His second market that he entered was the Washington, D.C. market. So franchising in Maryland is like him going to his home. And uh, and so we're delighted to have him there. But the founder continues to talk about the things that they believed were always so special about the brand. And that's what we try to lean into. When you look at our digital advertising, we're just celebrating the food. And the things about the food you simply don't get anywhere else. A 500 degree oven toasting your sandwich when you order it. The fact that we sell these soups that are so amazing. You talked about the cookie on the straw. Um, and that's a, I mean, it's a custom made shortbread cookie that's only made for putting on the straw of the shake at Potbelly. Mm-hmm. That's how much we care about the details. Brian did that. Um, one of our, one of our uh, highest response rate uh, digital promotions or even pieces of digital social activity is someone taking a sandwich and dipping it into their soup and then taking a bite. (laughs) And it's, and you know, people look at that and go, well, you can't do that. And then they do it and they think that's delicious. Well, those are, (laughs) those are two things that you can only get at Potbelly. And that's one thing that you're taking a hot sandwich into hot soup. And it just, it just continues to sort of exploit what is so distinct and differentiated about us? Um, our cookies, Chris, they're the best cookies on the planet. Um, I mean, they are that good. Uh, I tell this to people all the time, and they'll say, well, I've never had one of your cookies. And I said, well, I'll fix that. I'll go get one at the front counter. And I get the same answer every time. My gosh, Bob, you that you weren't kidding. This is the best cookie <laughs> I've ever had. <laughs> well, is I, I, uh I knew about the cookie on the shake. I know about the cookies in general. I have not uh, done the sandwich into the soup. So I I have my work cut out for me, Bob. We have a chicken pot pie soup and we make a pie crust in the oven in the morning. And when you order chicken pot pie soup, we'll take that pie crust and crumble fresh baked pie crust on top of your soup and turn it over to you. It's you're killing I me. believe customers You're killing, me. Cons- You're killing me. Well, that's what I love about this place. I'm telling you, the customers notice when you take that much care. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, you bake your cookies in the shop every day, those types of things. So um, yeah, it it's a it's a lot of fun to to bring that to life. And to, and you know, you've asked me about margins a couple of times. When you can do all of that and keep growing the profitability while driving value for the customer, then then we all win. That's the, uh, if you'll forgive it, uh, the right recipe? Yes, it is. Excellent, excellent. Um, one last question. Um, we talked a little bit about your domestic growth footprint, but we didn't say anything about international. Is that a long-term opportunity? I think one would have to think it is a long-term opportunity. I, I do not want to mislead you. It is not part of our strategy today. Okay. Uh, and it is, I don't say that because we don't believe it's got potential, but I, I think that uh, management teams are easily distracted. And so part of our discipline around that strategy and those those strategic initiatives is that we create focus. Um, it's very important for us. Uh, we, we really do believe the turnaround is behind us, but the growth is ahead of us and the growth requires just as much focus as the turnaround did, um, or we will get distracted and we won't take care of the right things. So yeah, look, the brand actually was international at one time. Um, I mean, I personally have been in a pot belly that used to be open in, in Dubai. Um, so we'd been, we'd been 
you know, in several places outside the U.S., but not anymore. There are no international locations left. I have led international growth at two different companies, um, and uh, it, it can be quite exciting. It can be very rapid growth. Uh, it is unique and different, and it can be a resource drain that we don't want to let that uh, dissuade us from where the, the nearer-term potential is. If and when you do it, mm-hmm. if and when, likely to be franchises? Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, cool. Yeah. Excellent. Bob, you've been uh, so generous with your time. Thank you so much for the insights. But before we get out of here, anything we didn't touch on that you think we should? I I think we hit a lot of the most important parts of the work that we're doing. Um, and it's, um, I don't know if it's of interest to your, your uh, listeners or not, but uh, I, I, I do want to leave you with a personal tip. Well, please. Um, I have a jar of hot peppers uh, from Potbelly in my refrigerator, always, and I always have a backup jar in the pantry. And I have yet to find very many foods that aren't made better by the Potbelly Jardinera hot peppers. Uh, if you like hot peppers, ours are award-winning. And I think it's another one of those elements that uh, that make it very special. And it's a cool part of the brand that you can keep at home and keep uh, kind of keep your, your home food uh, just as exciting as ours is. Well, but Bob, uh, you, Bob you, if you, you haven't keep- tried them, you got to get them. You you can't tease that without saying what you put them on. Oh, at home, uh, I love them on eggs. If I do make a sandwich at home, I'll put them on those. I know you'll think I'm crazy, but they taste great on a salad um, because the oil gets distributed through the salad, especially if you put avocado on your salad like I do at Potbelly and I do at home. Um, it's, uh, it's just a terrific add to just about anything. All right. So I have two things to do. I have two pieces of homework, hot pot peppers. <laughs> actually three chicken pot pie soup and then dipping the sandwich into the hot soup okay yeah bob hopefully you'll come back on the program and when we do i will update you on my homework uh we'll also hear look to hear a lot more about your progress not so much on the turnaround as you mentioned but on the growth part of what you and the team will be executing on yeah thanks so much chris thank you so much bob